Book One, Chapter Three of Gloriana or The Revolution of Nineteen Hundred. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gloriana or The Revolution of Nineteen Hundred. Book One, Chapter Three. Always busy and astir, the little town of Melton Mowbray presents a more than usual busy aspect on the morning of 15th April, 1894. It is early yet, nevertheless the streets ring with the sound of trotting and cantering hacks, as well as the more sober paces of the strings of horses returning from exercise to their respective stables. People are coming and going at a rapid rate. They nearly all seem to know each other judging by the little nods and good-mornings and such-like familiar greetings with which friends meet, and in which these aforementioned personages indulge, as they hurry by each other. A party of horsemen and horsewomen are just riding out of the stables belonging to the limes. They are laughing and talking merrily. We have seen two of the women before, and their names are Mrs. de Lacey Trevor and Lady Manderton. Close in attendance upon them are two smart, good-looking men, whom we must introduce to the reader as Lord Charles Dartrey and the Earl of Westray. The former appears to be entirely taken up with the first-named lady, the latter, already introduced to the reader in a former chapter as Lord Eltay, with the last-named one. There is yet another pair in that cheery group that we must particularly notice. They are a man and woman, both young, both good-looking, and both unmistakably at home in the saddle. If one can judge from appearances, the woman must be about twenty-two years of age, the man perhaps five or six years her senior. Both are mounted on grey horses, and both look every inch what they are, splendid equestrians. The woman is well known in society's world, as also in the tiny hunting world of Melton. She is Lady Flora Desmond, and the man is handsome Captain Jack Delamere. They trot through the streets at a merry pace down past the Harborough Hotel, over the railway, away on by Wicklow Lodge, towards Burton Lazarus. It is a beautiful morning, and the sun is shining brightly on the flats that lie below. Dalby Hall, nestling amidst its woods on the far hillside, stands out distinct and clear, with the same bright sun gleaming on its gables and windows. "'What a glorious morning, Jack!' exclaims Lady Flora enthusiastically. Why, it's like summer, is it not? The others are a little on ahead, and these two have fallen in the rear. Jack looks at the speaker with a smile. It's a grand day, Florrie, and it suits you too. I never saw you looking better in my life. She flushes up. Florrie Desmond does not care about compliments, she values them at their worth. But she and Jack are fast friends, and she is not quite averse to them from him. She answers, however. Shut up, you goose, and don't talk nonsense. She is a clever woman, is Flora Desmond, cleverer far than some people take her to be. Her bringing up has not been exactly like other women's, and she has always kicked against the restraints and restrictions put upon her sex. She is the daughter of the Marquis and Marchioness of Douglasdale, and an orphan, having lost her father at an early age. Lady Douglasdale was, in her day, a very beautiful woman a persona grata at court, where her husband exercised the duties of comptroller of the household, and was a favourite with his sovereign. But after the Marquis's death she took greatly to travelling, and thus it was that Flora Ruglan, in conjunction with her twin brother Archie, 
saw most of the great world of Europe before she was ten years of age. Traveling expands the mind and brightens the senses. It had this effect upon the girl, forming much of her character before its time. At that early age she exhibited peculiar characteristics. No one could get her to settle down to study under a governess. She loathed the sight of schoolbooks and led her unfortunate preceptors a sad life. Yet, in strange contradiction to so much willfulness and apparent indolence, she was seldom without the companionship of a book in her play-hours, and when not otherwise engaged with her brother, would invariably be found poring over these books, thirstily seeking knowledge or committing to paper, in powerful language, for one so young, the impressions of her youthful brain. She had dreams, had Flora Ruglan, dreams of a bright future, an adventurous career. The time had not arrived when the road which she and her twin brother had been pursuing would branch off in different directions, his leading forth to opportunities of power, fame and glory, hers along a lane narrow and cramped, with nothing to seek at the end save that against which her bright independent spirit rebelled and revolted. But it came at last, when the companion of her happy childhood's days was taken from her, when Archie was sent to school and she was left alone. It came upon her with a suddenness which she found difficult to realize, and the blow was terrible. To describe what she suffered would be well-nigh impossible. Only those who by experience have learnt it could be brought to understand the horror of her position. But Flora Ruglan, having faced it, brought all the courage of her nature to support it, though from that moment she became utterly changed. She had no one in whom to confide neither her mother nor anyone else would have understood her. With girls of her own age she had nothing in common, and they looked on her with awe as a proud, stuck-up being. None could guess at the warm heart that beat beneath Flora Ruglan's apparently cold and reserved demeanour, except one, and that one was a boy of about her own age. She had made his acquaintance during the holidays, when Archie, home from school, had invited his best pal to spend them at Ruglan Manor, the beautiful dower property of Lady Douglasdale. It was with young Lord Estcourt that Archie Douglasdale had struck up so keen a friendship. The lads had been new boys at Eton together, and in the first strangeness of introduction to that boy's world had been thrown into each other's company a good deal, being in the same house, and, as in Flora's case, much of the same age. When Estcourt came to Ruglan Manor, Flora Ruglan was about seventeen years of age. She was interested in her brother's friend, inasmuch as he had lately lost his mother and was an orphan. It had not taken long for a firm friendship to spring up between the boy and girl. Nigel Estcourt was an only child, had never known what it was to have brothers and sisters, and was ready to look upon Flora in that light gladly enough. He and she were a great deal in each other's company and for the first time in her life she unloosed the cords of her heart, and told him of the trouble that had descended upon her life. He sympathized with her, did young Nigel. How could he help it, being, as he was, the friend of Hector de Strange? That extraordinary boy had risen to be head of the school. None could equal him at Eton, and his name had gone forth beyond the portals of the college as the coming man of his day. The article in the Free Review, which had first brought his name into prominence in the year 1890, had created a good deal of discussion in many circles. Of course it had been vigorously attacked. 
What great stroke aimed at justice and freedom but has never been so opposed, hounded down and decried? But truth is like a bright sun which no mortal power can dim. It may be clouded for a time, but it must shine forth and ultimately prevail. He had left Eton, gone to Oxford, and had there taken high honours. He no sooner made his appearance in the world of fashion, politics and letters than he was received and courted everywhere. Never before had a youth risen so rapidly in the scale of success. He was undoubtedly the idol of his day, and in 1894 only twenty-one. It was extraordinary. Hector de Strange would marvel often at it himself. He had gone out into the world in what was mere childhood, prepared to combat with the many difficulties which he knew must beset his path. He was over-modest was this boy. He had not sufficiently estimated his great and surpassing genius, but it had shone forth, been recognized and approved of, because he was a man. To return to Flora Ruglin. At the age of eighteen she lost her mother, and the guardianship of the girl devolved on her aunt, a giddy, worldly woman, the late Marquis's sister and Countess of Dunderfield. No two women could have been more diametrically opposite than these two no two characters more unlike. Briefly, and to cut the matter short, Lady Dunderfield insisted on taking Flora into society, and set herself to bring about a match between the high-souled, high-spirited girl and the Duke of Dovetail, a rich old monstrosity, whose rent-roll was nigh on a million, and whose body was afflicted by almost every disease under the sun. Had the girl been in a position to map out her own line of life, what a different tale might now be told! She was not. The law denied her the right to choose her future. It curtailed her line of action within certain bounds. What could she do? The odds were against her, and she sought refuge through the first outlet that presented itself. This outlet was in the shape of a young baronet, a youth of twenty-one. He thought himself very much in love with Lady Flora Ruglin. He proposed, and she accepted him. Lady Dunderfield forbade Sir Reginald Desmond the house. The young people took French leave of her, fled to Scotland, and were married, and Lady Dunderfield, green with disappointment and rage, had to accept the fact. This is how Flora Ruglin became Lady Flora Desmond. Had she erred in the step she took? Perhaps so. What other alternative had she? Had the law permitted her to go out into the world and adopt the profession of her choice, there is little doubt that ere this Flora Ruglin would have made a great name for good. He pretends to be offended at her remark, does Jack Delamere, and pulls his horse a little away from her own. She notices the movement and laughs lightly, as she urges her animal alongside him, and taps him gently on the shoulder with her whip. "'Look there, Jack!' she exclaims at the same time. "'We are not the first on the course after all.' Look at those two riding over the fence alongside the brook. Who are they, I wonder? The woman can ride. It is easy enough to see that." They are just turning to the left, through the gate leading to the steeplechase course on the Burton Flats, and as Jack Delamere's eyes follow the direction indicated by Flora Desmond, he at once perceives two mounted figures galloping up the course in the direction of the grandstand. One is a man, the other a woman. As Flora Desmond has declared, the woman can ride. She sits her horse straight as a dart. He is pulling a bit, but she has him well in hand, 
and he is not likely to get away with her. Hector de Strange, by all that's holy, and with a woman too, laughs Jack Delamere. Look, Florrie, is the world coming to an end, or am I dreaming? That you are certainly not, she answers quickly. There is no mistake about it. But who is she? They have joined the others now and find them equally exercised over the female apparition. It may be explained that this is the morning of the Melton Hut steeplechases, and that this party has ridden over early to the courses to go round the fences and inspect them severally. They had bargained on being the first in the field, but now perceive that they have been forestalled by Hector de Strange and his companion. Let's go and have a look, suggests Lord Westray. He is an admirer of women, and it is easy to perceive, even at the distance which separates the party from the stranger, that she is a fine one. They all gallop down to the stand, riding along in a row towards Hector and his friend. He sees them coming and says something to her, and Flora notices that she brings her horse closer to his side. Mrs. Trevor and Lady Manderton are all eyes and stare as they pass the two. Hector has raised his hat politely and wished them a good morning. His face is flushed with the exercise of riding, his rich auburn hair shines out like gold in the sunlight, his glorious eyes, dark in their sapphire blue, look particularly winning and beautiful. But it is with his companion that the eyes of the others are busy. They are all struck by her extreme loveliness, and are loud in wonder as to who she is. Only Lord Westray is silent, white as a sheet, too. It is years since he set eyes on Lady Elte, and now he sees again, after a long lapse of time, the woman whom he so grievously wronged more than twenty-two years before, his divorced wife, Speranza Delara. "'Come on!' he exclaims, just a shade roughly to Lady Manderton. He has of late been, by the way, making up to her. She has got tired of Sir Arthur Muster Day, and has shelved him for the wicked Earl by which name Lord Westray is known in society circles. Mrs. Trevor, too, though she still sticks to kill, and makes him believe that she is as devoted to him as ever, has managed to hook on to herself several other devoted swains, to all of whom in turn she expresses a mint of devotion, while really feeling not the slightest affection for any of them. She has played her part well, however, for they each severally believe themselves to be the favoured man in her good graces. They gallop forward in the wake of Lord Westray, and Flora Desmond and Jack Delamere are once more alone. "'What a lovely woman!' she bursts out as soon as they have passed Hector de Strange and Speranza. "'Jack, did you ever see such eyes? I never saw lovelier, unless perhaps Hector de Strange's. What a handsome pair the two make!' Well, yes, Florrie, she is certainly a lovely woman. Cunning dog, young Hector, to have kept her out of sight so long. Now we can understand why he is so cold to women. Of course, that's where his heart is, without doubt," answers Jack Delamere with a smile. The Melton Hunt steeplechases of 1894 are over. The meeting will long be remembered by the unparalleled success of Mr. Hector de Strange who, writing in the six races printed on the card for competition, came in first, the winner of every one of them. This success is all the more remarkable, inasmuch as four of the winners were non-favorites, so that the wins must be ascribed to the splendid horsemanship of their jockey. 
The feat is unparalleled, the nearest approach to it being when Captain Doggy Smith in 1880 carried off all the races on the card except one, being defeated in a match which closed the day's proceedings between Lord Hastings' memory and Lord James Douglas, the general. In this match, Doggy Smith rode Lord Hastings' mare and Lord James Douglas his own horse, the general. Such is the announcement chronicled in a well-known weekly sporting paper a few days after the Melton Hunt steeplechases of 1894, scoring yet another triumph on the path of thoroughness for Hector de Strange. End of Book One, Chapter Three